listening to The Living Writers Show. Today in the studio with me, I have Randall Kennedy, and he's here in town reading tonight at Shaman Drum Bookshop at 7 p.m. from his his latest book, Sell Out, The Politics of Racial Betrayal. Um, I'm T. Hetzel, and... Randall, welcome. Welcome to Living Writers. Thanks so much for having me on. <laughs> Thanks for being here. And uh, and it's coming at that. I was noticing your your um, your your tour schedule here. It's it's been quite uh, rigorous, and and you're sort of wrapping up the end of it. That's right. This is my last uh, out of out of town uh, trip. Yes. Because because uh, you've got St. Louis coming up next right that's right yeah so one more and then you're home yeah for a long time i'll be home oh that's good (laughs) and home being harvard university home being that's right the boston area and i work at harvard uh, law school well um as a way of introduction i'll read from sell out the the politics of racial betrayal the the biography in the background okay Randall Kennedy is the Michael R. Klein Professor of Law at Harvard University. He is a member of the bars of the District of Columbia and the Supreme Court of the United States, a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and a member of the American Philosophical Association. His book, Race, Crime, and the Law, won the Robert F. Kennedy Book Award. Um, His earlier books are available also from Vintage Books. And uh, this book, Randall, Sellout, uh, is, is just new from January 2008 from Pantheon Books. That's, that's right. It's been out about a month. And so how's the whirlwind? Has it been, well, I shouldn't just assume, but is it a whirlwind? Has it been like with the release of the book and and the subsequent book tour? And Well, it's been an interesting uh, ride. The book came out about a month ago. The publisher sends me to a couple of cities uh, every week. Uh, the publisher is Pantheon Books. I've published, I've pub- this is my fourth book. And they've all been with Pantheon. They were the folks who got me interested in writing books. Law, law teachers mainly write in law reviews. That's the way you make your name. That's the way that you uh, uh, burnish your reputation in legal academia. And um, what happened is that a couple years ago, gosh, it's been about 10 years ago, and uh, the Wall Street Journal excerpted a piece from one of my law reviews, and an editor at Pantheon Books, Errol McDonald, called me up out of the blue. I'd never met him before. He just said, you know, why don't you write a book? Why don't you make a book out of this? And I said, that's a good idea. And we've been together ever since. Oh, that's a lovely story. <laughs> um, I'm so glad you addressed that, because that was one of the things I was going to ask you. Uh, I went to the, the Harvard Law website, and so, of course, I saw how... Uh, there's only like the t- the latest 50 or the top 50 publishings for each of you know the newspaper articles, mm-hmm. uh, reviews, and and you've just got thousands. It looks like, <laughs> and so I was wondering about the jump because I know there's that whole the cliche of publisher parish in academia, and then I'm sure it would transfer itself to a law school environment as well. Yeah, I've been very fortunate because before I went to law school. I wrote for general interest magazines, The New Republic, Harper's. Uh, you are on the board of The Nation? I am on the board of or The you Nation. you are, okay. I, well, I used to be. I'm not on the board of The Nation uh, now, but I used to write for The Nation. I used to write for a bunch of general interest publications, and I think it was good training because it got me in the habit of speaking to a general audience. 
Uh, an editor at Harper's, Lewis Lapham, once said, you know, in, in, in academia, people have got to read what you write. The student, you know, your colleagues <laughs> have to read what you write. The students have, you know, they're a captive audience. Especially if you assign it, right? That's right, if you assign it. But he said, you know, if, if something's uh, on a newsstand, Nobody has to. Nobody has to read anything you've written, and they're not going to give you much of a chance. They're going to read, maybe they're going to read the first sentence. Maybe they'll read the first paragraph. So you got to catch them, and you got to catch them fast. And the language has to be alive. It's a, it's a different type of language. Absolutely, right? not these cobbled together phrases. You, you, yeah. you have to grab somebody. You have to hook them. And I think that was great advice. And I've I've taken that to heart. And so in my academic work, I work very hard on titles. I work very hard on uh, the, the topic sentence. I work very hard on that very first page. And, uh, but what about the subsequent pages, Randall? Well, you know, you work hard on the subsequent pages, but I tell you, it, it's, it's, it's getting somebody to open the book mm-hmm. is half the battle. I mean, obviously, you want all the pages to be, you know, excellent, but... Somebody has got to open that book. And that's one of the reasons why I spend a lot of time thinking about uh, titles. Mm-hmm. I've gotten in trouble because of some uh, of the titles. So? Well, I mean, um, the book that I wrote before this one was called Nigger, The Strange Career of a Troublesome Word. And that title got me into a lot of trouble. There were a lot of people, were, you know, there were not, not a lot. I mean, some people liked the title, but there were some people who were absolutely appalled and accused me of, um, of being opportunistic, accused me of uh, being, you know, just out, you know, just out and out mercenary. And, uh, you know, I, my, my view is that titles matter a great deal. You go into a bookstore, there are hundreds of books around. There are thousands of books around, all of them calling out to the potential <laughs> reader, you know, read me, read me. So you have to craft a title that will give your book a second look. So I think about, I think about titles, you know, very, very seriously. The power of language, too. I guess that's something we'll be talking about because it, it figures prominently in your latest book. Sure. Of course, that's what we're, yeah, the sellout, the idea of it. Yeah. So, um... With, with um, I thought it was interesting with the with the book. Um, you're going to read it with a small a small part of it for us in, in the you know the next quarter. Okay. Um, so stay tuned, everyone. Um, but I thought it was interesting your idea because you've got how you constructed the or how you structured the book is you you start out with a, a preface and that's what you'll be reading from mm-hmm. Randall and then um, you've got five chapters and then an epilogue. And I thought it was interesting what you chose to to put in the epilogue. Uh, would you like? Can, is that too general a way to start no, you off? It is, it's, it's interesting that you say that. There was a reviewer in the Los Angeles Times. Well, first of all, let me tell you, tell the audience what the, is in the epilogue. The epilogue is uh, I, 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 I talk in the epilogue about two personal experiences that largely prompted the writing of the book. And in the epilogue, I talk about. Uh, how um, I've been called a sellout from time to time, mainly because of things that I've written. And I also talk about my interactions with black students at Harvard Law School who I think are um, uh, weighed down by fear of being called uh, sellout. Mm-hmm. And so I, that's what I talk about in the epilogue. And there was one reviewer who said that 
you know, this should have been the first thing that I talked about. It should have been in the preface instead of the epilogue. The reason why I put these things in the epilogue is because I, I didn't want to trade on, uh, you know, personal experience, really. I wanted to put my ideas out there and then let somebody get familiar with those. And then after all that was done with, talk about my personal experiences. I'm very loath to personalize too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I got that. I, I was wondering if it was because the, the, that, that was your intention because of the way you were framing it also within using sort of coming at it from the law and, and, and a large chunk of the book being a case study of Clarence Thomas, you know, yeah. Supreme Court Justice. Like, it, but but if you had done it the other way, I don't know how the book would have been completely different because everything that you would have written that followed that would have had that tinge of memoir or something. Like the tinge of memoir, the tinge of self justification. Yes. In yeah. fact, I mean, I was, I was very um, ambivalent on talking at all about my experience as a target of the sellout indictment. The only one reason I, and I, you know, you try out these things while you're writing, you, you try out test balloons in conversation, uh, <laughs> in lecture, you know, you sort of, sort of see how people respond. And there were a couple of people who suggested to me that uh, folks who were familiar with my previous writings might think it a little bit odd if I didn't talk at all about my own experience uh, with you know, being c- accused of uh, uh, showing too little allegiance to the black community. So I thought, well, okay, I'm not going to start out that way, but I will at the end talk about talk. that. Yeah, because I guess, and maybe they're, they're saying you needed to include it because of how you structured the book with the for example, the second chapter is titled The Idea of the Sellout in Black American History. So mm-hmm. you're giving a historical perspective. Um, yeah, that's how I go. That's frankly how I go at most things. Uh, when uh, practically any subject that I investigate, whether it be, you know, uh, it, it doesn't matter what, frankly, I'm always interested in the history of the subject, whether it be the history of a word. I mean, everything has a history. Right. Our names have histories. Every every topic has a history. And the first, my way of trying to come to grips with whatever subject that I'm exploring is to first figure out the history of the subject. Uh, and then after I've done that, uh, go into various avenues which seem particularly pertinent to me. And is that, that the history seems like that would be... Um that makes that's a sensible way to, to see you going towards it because of Oxford because you took a degree in, in history at Oxford right so well that's actually something that you know actually I, I did not I, I went to Oxford I was a Rhodes Scholar I, I did not uh, take a degree oh. <laughs> I was one of those I, I retract one, that that's okay I was one of those <laughs> Americans I, I went I was not a very good student uh, at Oxford I had a good time and I, and I started writing for magazines there I got something out of it oh so that's when you you started writing what right. you said the, the general interest articles I started and, writing for Descent magazine and I started mm. writing for the New Republic when I was in England and uh, and, and it was very good training but I, I wish I'd taken Oxford a bit more seriously Really? What's an example of not taking it seriously? Did you not show up for your, your what are they called? They're called something else there, Oh, right? tutorials. I, I, I don't know. Well, yeah, the dons. <laughs> I, I simply did the whole thing. I did not take very seriously. And frankly, I'm, 
I'm very sorry about it now. I mean, it was a wonderful opportunity. Listen, that, if you're a University of Michigan student, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, run in a, into life. Truly, advantage. truly, I did not take good advantage of that, and and I'm and I'm sorry about it. I'm sorry about it to this day, but. I, I, like I said, I did start writing for magazines there, and that proved to be a very useful uh, endeavor. Yeah, as it led, as you started us off, uh, the show, talking about how it led to writing the books. Absolutely. That inv- invitation. Yeah, to... no, I think it's been very important. It's uh, certainly affected, like I said, the way I do my scholarship. Maybe we can also talk a little bit about how the writing of a book because it's like a it's almost you can look at it as five separate essays that are uh-huh. hooked together right in some way or, or tell me if i'm wrong <laughs> well no i find the the writing of a book for me is a very stren- strenuous activity i mean i i think about it as if it was a uh, uh an athletic contest i mean you, you know just day after day after day i think about you, you got to push the ball down the court you just have to keep at it. And a large part of it is just perseverance. I mean, it really is a very taxing thing. It's easy to fall away from. Uh, it's As easy- opposed to when you are writing these, either the the articles in the reviews or in the, the, the newspaper work or the magazine work. I think it's- all writing is difficult. I think all writing is difficult. I think writing yes. writing a letter home <laughs> to mom or dad, a good letter, right. uh, is, is, is difficult. So I think all writing is, is work, and it's tough work. Um, with a book, you know, it's just, it's, it's just a larger enterprise, usually. And um, I, I have found it very fulfilling, I must say, as between... Law review articles and books, I'm very happy that I've written books. Um, I mean, I've done both, but I especially like the books because books get out more. I mean, you know, when I write a lot. Broader law, audience. Broader audience. Law review articles, student, you know, law students read them. Uh, uh, law professors read them. But with books, all sorts of people. I'm always, I'm getting emails from people, all sorts of people. All the time. It's, it's entering into the cultural conversation in a way. Yeah. Right? Well, let's take a short break, and then we'll come back, and we'll, we'll, we'll pick up with that. Wonderful. Okay, you're listening to Living Writers. We'll be right back. Out of 
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in um, today on Living Writers, Randall Kennedy, and we've got his book, Sell Out, The Politics of Racial Betrayal. Um, welcome, Randall, again. <laughs> welcome back to the second 15 minutes of Living Writers. Uh, so where we just left off was the idea of a book entering into to cultural conversation um, more so than these the reviews that you were writing for the uh, uh, for the law reviews. Rather. Yeah, I mean, just, it's just that it's nice to write for a wide range of people. When I write a book, I do have in mind a particular audience. I have in mind well, who's that audience? My law students. Okay. I have in mind my law students. I, I imagine that I'm speaking to uh, students in my law class, but. I also have in mind. Uh, so, do, how does that change? How does that differ then from what if you're writing for the law review? Then, well, I guess the law review, the law review articles are, are are typically more technical. Though, frankly, when I write law review articles, I want to write them in a way that they're accessible to any energetic reader. Mm-hmm. So even a, a reader even, willing to engage yeah, with a, the ideas, a reader yeah. willing to engage, a reader willing to do a little bit of work, uh, a reader willing to hang in there, a reader who's not going to be afraid of footnotes. <laughs> As you know, I, I use footnotes in my there book. There are so many footnotes in this book. Well, it, I mean, they are like the columns on the pages. <laughs> they're, I mean, they're they're very few actually compared to law review articles. But I like footnotes. I mean, footnotes. It's like uh, that's definitely a lawyer thing. Well, yeah, but I think I think that pe- I think it's a mistake for people to be afraid of footnotes. Footnotes provide sort of st- it's like it's like st- talking in stereo. You can have you can have a primary conversation, mm-hmm. and then with the footnote at the bottom of the page. Sub- Text. You can have a okay. subtext. You can have a side conversation. I'm not afraid. I don't. I don't want to well, go on the record as being afraid. Some of people notes. are, and and some publishers don't like them because I'm sure that they're 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 expensive, you know, to do. But oh. uh, I've never. One of the reasons why I really like my publisher is because my publisher has never given me any difficulty. Uh, even though the format of, of my books is a little bit complicated because I have footnotes and, you know, and, and I have endnotes. Right. The endnotes tell where to give the basis, give, give all my sources, and I'm very careful about that. You're, yes, very. So any, any, any exactly. time I state a fact, I want some be, somebody to be able to go check it. So if you don't believe me, fine, don't believe me. Go to go to my source and evaluate what I've said based on my sources. So uh, those are my endnotes. But then if I come across some nice, juicy, interesting thing that, um, you know, uh, doesn't qu- – I don't want it, – it would, it would break up the narrative, but it's, it's interesting enough so that I want somebody to be aware of it. Then I put a footnote. Mm-hmm. So to give an example, uh, early on in the book, I talk about why it is that I use the racial nomenclature that I use. Mm, yes. I talk about how – you know, I, I sometimes I use the term African American, sometimes I use the term black, but sometimes I use the word Negro, and sometimes I use the word colored, and I point out that you know there's some people who really don't like that. They think that those t- that colored and Negro very antiquated. Mm-hmm. That some people even think it's derogatory, and so I spend a long footnote goes over you know two pages uh, explaining why I why it is that uh, I use those terms, and uh, I, I talk about... It has to do with Thurgood Marshall. Well, it, in part it has to do with Thurgood Marshall. I, I worked for Thurgood Marshall uh, 
Mr. Civil Rights, great man, uh, in 1984. I was one of his law clerks. And I, I remember the first time I uh, worked on a memorandum in which I needed to identify a black party in the case. And I referred to the person as black. It was some civil rights case, I think, as, as I recall it. And he read my memorandum, and he, he gave me back the memorandum. And he said, listen, I use the term Negro, capital N. And so for the, for the year, I got used to using the term Negro. And Were I'm, you resistant to that? No. Did you have, or he was the whatever boss. he said, really? was That's yeah. where, listen, he was the boss. He was the yeah. justice. And so I, you know, I, I just followed orders. But I must say, one of the reasons why I, I use Negro now, apart from just aesthetically I like it, because I don't like, I don't like just using the same word over and over and over again. So I like using a wide variety of words. And in this case, I like using Negro in part because it reminds me of uh, Thurgood Marshall, and as a, you know, my as I say in the book, if it was if it was good enough for Thurgood Marshall, you know, if it was good enough for W. E. B. Du Bois, it's good enough for me. And you know, sometimes there was a student who got very angry with me a couple years ago when I used the term colored, and so I said, well, you know, let's talk about the term colored. Uh, one of the great organizations in American life. Mm one of the great civil rights organizations in American history is, is, is the NAACP, and the National the Association yeah. for the Advancement of Colored People. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I think that any... But people could also say, well, that's from a time, too. That's rooted in a time. But they could. Still with us today. Yeah. They could. And frankly, um, I don't mind, you know, it, it doesn't bother me if people... Uh, reject my usage and use African American or black. Fine, that's, that's that's fine by me. I think it's perfectly, you know, that's perfectly understandable. There's no problem with me. At the same time, I do. I don't want people to um, just fall into fashion. Mm -hmm. And I think that it actually is worthwhile for people to know something about the history of these terms. Uh, you know, uh, in Du Bois's time, there were people in the 1920s who also objected to the term Negro for various reasons. And W.B. Du Bois, in fact, wrote defending the term. Well, I, I, I want people to know that. And I want people to understand that there, you know, there, there are various ways of seeing this, just like there are various ways of seeing many things that are uh, important and in seem, our culture. And it, and it seems like what you're saying throughout um, Sellout is that context and intention, it must always be considered. Con context matters, intention matters, and also, I mean, one of the central points of uh, Sellout is that uh, the black American community is a very large community that is diverse in all sorts of ways. It's diverse in terms of religion, it's diverse in terms of geography, it's diverse in terms of socioeconomic position, it's diverse ideologically. Uh, it's much more diverse than I think many people recognize. And, and there was like a phrase, which I am trying to find, that you, you uh, deployment of power. 
I thought that was so interesting as well, like deployment of power, like uh, when you're using, because words are powerful. There's yes. no, there, we can't deny that um, from your previous books and, 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 and some of the things that then were said to you subsequently uh, being called a sellout. And that's sure. a powerful word. And how you say that people in Harvard, like that um, the, the Black Student Association has to struggle with um, feeling the... The, require, the obligations or requirements uh, towards their their history or the race? Or, yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, uh, the, the term sellout is a term that is uh, aimed at people who are deemed to be engaged in racial betrayal. They're people who, you know, are, 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 are viewed as race traitors. So when you use the term, yes, you're deploying power. You, you're, you're deploying a rhetorical term that really packs a wallop. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, one, under, one way of understanding my book is I'm talking about, to some extent, um, the way in which people ought to disagree with one another. So the, very, the longest chapter in my book is devoted to Justice Clarence Thomas, a person with whom I disagree fervently. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's. That's know. a risk then. You giving uh, giving him so much space in the book because, in a way, it's from without reading through mm -hmm. it, you'd see it as almost an alignment. Well, some people see it that way, but I mean, anybody who sees it that way just hasn't read the book. I mean, it's quite clear. I'm extremely critical of Justice Thomas, but I say that I I I'd say that it it's an error. I think to call him a sellout, though he is routinely called a sellout. In fact, his name has become virtually synonymous with racial betrayal. I mean, to pull a Clarence Thomas is to engage in racial betrayal. Um, and but, but one of the things I say is, you know... Like Benedict Arnold, you said in absolutely. future generations, Clarence Thomas's name might be similarly called upon. I think it's already happened. Mm -hmm. I think I, I give a couple of examples where you know people say you know, you're, you're pulling a Clarence <laughs> Thomas. He he has become his name has become like Benedict Arnold's name has become. I mean, it's a, it's 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 a it's a synonym for the idea of of betrayal. Though I think it's I think it's wrong. Uh, I disagree with them, and I think it's important to signal degrees of disagreement. There's disagreeing a little bit, there's disagreeing a lot, and then there's the sort of disagreement in which the person with whom you're disagreeing is not simply a foe but an enemy. I think it's important to distinguish between a foe and an enemy. It's important to distinguish between... What, how are you distinguishing between those? Well, a, a foe is somebody with whom you can have a very strong disagreement, but you leave room open for continued communication. You leave room open for agreement about certain matters. Mm -hmm. An enemy is somebody who, frankly, you want to dispatch as quickly as possible. I can have, <laughs> I, I have, I have, I have uh, uh, lots of uh, wonderful dinners with ideological foes. And over dinner, we really go at it, and you know, and then, but we, you know, we end, we're, we're, we're friends. And you're still digesting. And we're digesting, and we look forward to the next discussion where we can really go at it. But the, you know, there, there you have a foe. You don't, you, don't, you don't go to dinner with enemies. Mm -hmm. 
you don't go to dinner with enemies. And one of the one of the points I make is, you know, for purposes of uh, advancing the interests of the black community, I think it's I think it's important to recognize that uh, you can actually push people away who might be useful to your cause if you're not careful in framing the way in which you disagree with them. And you can actually turn people from, you know, again, you know, foes about this or that issue into enemies who will distrust you and, in fact, hate you with respect to every issue. And, and has that, do you feel like that's, that's happened because oh, yes. of the, the, your writing, these, these books? Or? Oh, for me, no, not so much. I mean, one of the, I, I talk, again, in my, in my epilogue when I say that, you know, because of certain things that I've, I've written. Um, I'll give you an example. I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Interracial Intimacy, Sex, Marriage, Identity, and Adoption. And it was, it was a book about the law and interracial intimacy. And in the course of writing the book, I, I indicated quite clearly that um, I, uh, I defend interracial intimacy. I, you know, I defend interracial intimacy. Well, there were some people uh, who viewed that as a type of abandonment of the race. And in fact, in, my, in, in, in Sellout, I talk about how in the 19th century, the most celebrated black American activist intellectual of the 19th, of the 19th century was probably Frederick Douglass. Uh, Frederick Douglass was deemed to have engaged in racial betrayal when he married a white woman. Right, right, because you're saying it's part of the litmus test. If you're black enough, uh, that you won't oh, marry a, a white person. Yeah. Or, or... In fact, uh, I, I drop a footnote on this. Uh, during my book tour of interracial intimacies, I was in a bookstore in Washington, D.C., and I was talking about the book. And a lady was at the back of the store, and I could see she was agitated, but I couldn't hear what she was saying. But this lady was really agitated. She turned to the man next to her and said, um, you know he's married to a white woman, don't you? And the man said, well, no, he's not. And then a few minutes later, she turned to him and said, I know that he's married to a white woman. And the man turned to her and said, uh, I know that he's not because he's married to my daughter. She was talking of, to, of all people, my father-in-law. And uh, uh, my wife of blessed memory was a black woman. But this lady listening to me, given, you know, given what I was saying, given my defense of interracial intimacy, just you know, sort of uh, leaped to the conclusion, leapt to the conclusion that you know, he must be married to a white woman. Right, right. So, so yeah. So that's why you, you have to read thoroughly. You can't, and you can't read one of your books and then think you've got it all figured out for the books to come either. I would think in any, in any uh, group. But, but hey, let's take a short break, and we'll be right back with Living Writers and Randall Kennedy.
Uh, welcome back. If you're just joining us, you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor Living Writers. And today, Randall Kennedy joins us in the studio uh, with his book, Sell Out the Politics of Racial Betrayal. You were just listening to Kristen Hirsch with the throwing muses there. Um, Alrighty. So, Randall, the preface. Since we've been talking about the epilogue, we'll move to the, <laughs> the opposite end. Um, and you start uh, the preface with a quote from Oprah Winfrey, uh, her commencement address at Howard University in May of 2007. Do not be a slave to any form of selling out. Yeah. I was very... Um, last uh, summer, uh, Oprah Winfrey gave this commencement address, and it got a lot of attention. And I heard it uh, on the radio, and I was very excited to hear it, especially when she used the term selling out, <laughs> because, I mean, for my purposes, it, it, it showed how pervasive this term is. I mean, here she was, you know, this is Oprah Winfrey giving this commencement address. The term sellout appears. And, uh, you know, one of, one, of, one of the points that I tried to make in the book is that... Uh, the anxiety over racial abandonment, the anxiety over racial betrayal is a central anxiety uh, in black America. And, you know, what better way to uh, underline that point than with this uh, comment of uh, Oprah Winfrey's. And, and, and why is that? Like, is it because of that she's who she is or, oh. or that she's address, addressing um, graduating students at Howard or... All of the above. I mean, it's because of who she is. So here's this person who's, you know, known to everyone. She's giving this address at Howard University, one of, you know, one of the leading historically black universities, and that it would show up in her commencement address shows the way in which this this idea this this like i said this anxiety i mean again let me re do not be a slave to any form of selling out and, and, and when she said that, that when mm -hmm. she said that you know she got you know applause it was a big applause line and again it it fit perfectly with uh, the point i I'm, I'm making which is that uh, this is a a big anxiety in black american life let me let me hasten to add that uh, it's not peculiar to black American life. Every group has an anxiety about betrayal, an anxiety about abandonment. Uh, and being true, true enough to the group. Being but, true to the group. I don't care if we're talking about a family. I don't care if we're talking about a union. I don't care if we're talking about uh, the nation state. Think about mm -hmm. how much, think about how much attention is paid to uh, uh, inculcating patriotism or penalizing people who are deemed not to be patriotic. Yeah, America, love it or leave it. Absolutely. So there, there you have this, this anxiety. I mean, in the United States, every so often, has meltdowns. You know, you think of mm. the, you think of the uh, McCarthy. Absolutely, yeah. McCarthyism after World War II, the Red Scare after World War One. Uh, in the in the past decade, obviously, there's been a lot of concern about. Um, if you're supporting the troops, if yeah, you're supporting the, the ways troops, to support the troops are, are you, very particular. Are you, are you a subversive? I mean, mm -hmm. this is, so every every group has an anxiety about whether people within the group 
are doing enough to support the group. And so I just follow this out insofar as black America is concerned. Yes. And and when you were researching this, did you see, like, when did this term sellout enter the language? Good point. You know, good question. I do not know that. I do not know that. Okay. Uh, the etymology of it. I mean, I mean, one problem with, not a problem, I mean, one, one interesting aspect of the term sellout, of course, is that it, it can mean lots of different things. It has been used as a term suggesting betrayal in lots of contexts. So in popular culture, you know, some people say that... Uh, for bands, for example. For bands. Right. I mean, Bob Dylan. There were people when Bob Dylan first went to use electric, electric <laughs> guitar. How could you abandon? How could you do that? You know, you're a sellout. Right, right. Um, so... The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. <laughs> Not plugged in <laughs> to so the wall. So it's, it's, it's been around for a good while. I have certainly not been able to uh, uh, pinpoint... You know, when in Black American parlance it was first used. Right. Okay. Because that is so interesting, isn't it? And how when it's used as a a noun, it's sellout. The word it's there's no space. And then if you're using it as a verb or or a gerund, then it's selling out. There is like a space between or yeah. sell space out. You know, that's very interesting. It's a very language, interesting thing. I and mean, sometimes you know, I mean, if you if you're an entertainer, you want to sell out the arena. Right. On the other hand, you don't want people to call you a sellout. Right. So it's it's it's, it's a it's a funny word. And of course, that became a part of the difficulty in actually trying to uh, uh, do research uh, using uh, LexisNexis, I would, you know, have a, I would I would get articles that included the word sellout, but you know, half of them I'd have to I'd I'd, I'd quickly see were of no use to me because they were talking about somebody having sold out some arena. Right. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. Let's. Uh, will you read us some of from the preface? Randall? I'll read. You, I'll read you the first paragraph. Of the book, and as I indicated before, for me, the first paragraph of a book is more important than all the other paragraphs. I mean, uh, you know, it's 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 that it's that first hook. So here here's the first paragraph. The specter of the sellout haunts the African American imagination. A long oppressed minority situated in the midst of a dominant white majority. Blacks fear that whites will favor and corrupt acquiescent Negroes who, from positions of privilege, will neglect struggles for group elevation. African Americans fear that whites will empower Oreos who look black but think white. African Americans fear that whites will promote black free riders and defectors who sap solidarity and discourage effective strategies for resisting subordination. Every social group, from the union to the organized crime family to the nation state, confronts the challenge of exacting loyalty to the collective in the face of self-interest, hardship, or even danger. That is why those engaged in the maintenance of groups expend considerable energy seeking to discover free-riding cheaters, think of the Internal Revenue Service in pursuit of tax evaders, or deceptive defectors, think of the Department of Justice in pursuit of traitors. If an entity as powerful as the United States of America periodically suffers from hysteria over perceived threats of internal subversion, it should be no surprise that African Americans, a marginalized, stigmatized, vulnerable racial minority, grapple with anxieties about racial betrayal. 
Thank you for, for reading that, Randall. Is that are you going to read from the book tonight at Shaman Drum? Or, what, what or are you I, gonna is it gonna be more of a dialogue? More of a dialogue, especially in the evenings. I think people are, you know, a little bit tired after a long day of work. What I usually do is talk for ten or fifteen minutes, give a just a overview of what I've written and then just open the floor up for discussion. Okay, so that so Shaman Drum tonight. Um after reading, I always think for a moment where to go because it's always so nice to hear the, the voice of the writer as well coming through. But we're so lucky to have the real person here in the studio. So back to the conversation, the cultural conversation that we're having, right? Um, and so let's talk a little bit about the idea. The first chapter is called, again, so you thought, I'm sure, now from listening, Randall, you thought about this long, the title of the chapter, Who is Black? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was a way to introduce also the, the current, like our, our, our presidential race, uh, Barack Obama, um, his ideas of saying that it wasn't a choice. You know, um, that chapter, when I turned in the manuscript, I did not have, I did not include that chapter. My, I turned in the manuscript and my editor called me up and said, you know, I think you need one more chapter. And I think you need one more chapter because your book is about uh, betrayal. But in order, to in order to be a traitor, in order to betray a group, you have to be in the group. Mm. So, so don't define, how do so you define you, that group? Exactly. How do you, def don't you need to have an opening chapter that begins with, well, who, who's black? And so I, I said, Errol, that's good advice and I'll have you a chapter in you know a couple weeks and that was the la that was the last thing that I wrote though it appears though it's the first chapter of the book it was actually the ra last chapter that I wrote was it um how was it to write a chapter like that because um is it do you, is part of the reason that you're 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 looking into these ideas because you feel a responsibility like you feel that um that that sort of, uh, you have these wonderful terms for it, which I'm not grasping uh, onto quickly enough, like a like an obligation or a duty or, or a responsibility. Is that? Well, when I, I mean, when I write when I write a book, when I write a book, I mean, I I've, the, the the responsibility I feel is to do my best to illuminate the issue. Uh, as, as as fully as I can, and back it up with your sources, and back it up with my sources, and just do the best job I can. And so, because who is black? Is that's a huge thing. It is. Say, it is. It? it is. And I I was very excited as soon as he said it. I thought, you know, there was sort of the shock of recognition. I thought, yep, good idea. Mm. And it really was not all that difficult to do because, you know, I thought it was an exciting. It was a, he, he, in a sense he gave me he gave me. Uh, an exciting task. Mm. And uh, I began the book by focusing on the man of the moment, Barack Obama. I remembered that Barack Obama had been on 60 Minutes and that the questioner uh, had, uh, a questioner had asked Barack Obama, when did you decide to be black? And Barack Obama responded very strongly by saying, you know, I, I didn't decide to be black. I am black. 
Uh, and he, he mainly focused on, Barack Obama mainly focused on sort of the way that he looks. And he said, you know, looking, being perceived like a being visually, perceived or... as black. And he said, you know, given the way I look, I have suffered many of the sort of, you know, the sort of the casual slights and the various impediments that other black people have faced. Now, there's a lot, I think, that's powerful to that. But I suggest in the book that um, that he is, that, that actually, although Barack Obama suggested that there was no choice in it, I think there is choice in it. I mean, after all, uh, Tiger Woods looks to many people to be black, too. But if you ask Tiger Woods, you know, when... What do you call yourself? Tiger Woods. Very, he very famously called himself Cablin Asian. There are hundreds of thousands of people in the United States who have a white parent, and a black parent like Barack Obama, who call themselves multiracial or mixed race. Uh, he doesn't say that. He says, I'm black American. I'm African American. That is a choice that he's made. So I think that the question of choice uh, is there and is important. I hypothesize that one reason why he didn't want to say that he had made a choice is because if you make a choice, you can change your mind. You can you can undo your choice. And I thought that that you know that the, if 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 he were to sort of say yes, I made a choice to be black, that would raise this anxiety that I'm talking about. This anxiety of a, a prospect of potential abandonment. That's right. That many African Americans find quite disturbing. That's right. And with good reason. Yeah. Let's let's take a break, Randall. Okay. Um, you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor.
Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers. Uh, I'm T. Hetzel, and today, Randall Kennedy in the studio with us. Um, so, back to the writing, Randall. <laughs> um, what what was uh, what's some of what's one of your happiest moments writing the book? Is well, tell you the truth, in in writing uh, books. Uh, one of the happiest moments for me is when I write the acknowledgments. For one thing, when I write the acknowledgments, the, the book is done. <laughs> so, in a, in a way, the work is largely, you know, it's largely finished. And uh, I love writing the uh, acknowledgments because it gives me an opportunity to thank publicly. Uh, people who've helped me through these various, um, you know, through these these various important episodes in my life, and that's what that's what a book is. It's an important episode in, in a person's life. And this, how long did this particular book take you? This one actually took me a lot. Didn't take me as long as as the others have. It took about two years, and it was written at a very difficult time. My my wife passed away three years ago. I did not think that I was going to be writing any more books, uh, frankly. And uh, why is that? Well, just sadness. It was a it was a devastating, a devastating loss, and uh, for for particularly for me and 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 our three children. So there was a a, a good many months in, after after she died that I, I didn't I didn't write anything. The abyss. And. Um, but then I started working, you know, on this a bit, and there were, you know, people who were extremely helpful in uh, enabling me to uh, to finish this project, uh, just through encouragement. And so it was it was it's it's, it's very nice being able to uh, publicly thank people who have been, uh, you know, so so helpful. And and then one of those people, it would seem, would be your brother. Ah, that's right. My brother is the person to whom uh, the book is dedicated. My brother, uh, Henry H. Kennedy Jr., is uh, a person who has been a, a great big brother throughout my life. In fact, many of the things that I've done have, uh, have, have stemmed directly from me seeking to be like him. Because he's a judge. He's, he, was a, he was a lawyer, and, 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 and I'm a lawyer. He uh, he was a tennis player, and I'm a tennis player. Uh, he's a wonderful person. I talk to him almost every day, and he was particularly helpful during these uh, past difficult uh, years. And so it was just a, it was a great thrill uh, to be able to uh, dedicate uh, this book to him. Is he also a writer? Well, he writes opinions. Okay. <laughs> he's a judge who who who, who writes opinions. Uh, he doesn't. He doesn't write uh, books and articles. But but is he a writer? Yeah, he is a writer. Yeah, you can flash flash forward to the editorial page. Well, and also he he also um, he also reads what I write. He's one of my most important readers. Most trusted. He's one, mm-hmm. definitely one of my most trusted. So if I have an idea, I will f- you know I will float it past him to get his his read of it. Yeah, good readers are. It, immensely important. Oh, absolutely. And I'm very, I'm, I'm very privileged, well, in so many ways, but in this way as well, because I'm able to uh, call upon uh, audiences 
captive audiences, otherwise known as classes, and uh, these captive audiences, audiences give me, you know, feedback. I can, you know, I often, these, these books that I write often begin as lectures. Mm-hmm. And the lecture format's great because I can give a lecture and I can look at people and I can see if people seem interested. Right, right. Or whether they seem... Where the energy is in the the speaking. Or, you know, know, if they're bored. Right. If they're bored, uh, you know, I think, well, you know, forget this idea. But if they're they're energized, I get a sense of, you know, maybe this this idea has, uh, has potential. So having good readers is just... Is, 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 is just fabulous. And of course, being in an academic environment, there are readers all around. Well, in, in your epilogue, you, you say one of the, the two personal reasons you have for writing the book. It, were, were, the, like, like, were the students that you, your students addressing their, their grappling with the idea of sellout, as well as the accusations of sellout that you, you absolutely, endured? Absolutely. I think, I mean, every, I come into contact with uh, excellent students who were going to do wonderful things with their careers. And some of these students, and I'm thinking particularly about the black students now, I think are weighed down too much by guilt, angst, uh, anxiety uh, around this whole idea of, you know, am I paying sufficient racial dues? Am I giving back to my community enough? Uh, if, If I become a uh, big shot lawyer at this uh, elite law firm? Am I being a sellout? And, you know, I've talked with students um, over the years, and my experience in talking with them was one of the things that animated this, this, this book project. And would you say, Randall, that this was the, the only way to write this book for you? To, to, to come at this idea, something that, that definitely affected your life, impact, I would say impacted it, because some of the accusations you can find on the web, it's, it's very hurtful, you know, and, and, or, or, or powerful in a way that people who don't read the book or don't, uh, it, it, it gives a lot of power to ideas that aren't fully uh, put into context. You know, or, I, I, I tell you, I think that there are people who are... I don't know, intimidated or hurt. But one one of my favorite writers is Samuel Johnson, the great Samuel Johnson. And Samuel Johnson said that, you know, if you if you publish something, you are disturbing the public peace. And you've <laughs> got to and you've got to be prepared to deal with anything that comes at you. And that's the way I feel about it. I I do my best and then, you know, I've I've had my say. And then you know, I'll let other people have their say, and be part of and be part of the conversation Absolutely. with the the, the the conversation of ideas. And uh, well, thank you. Thanks for being part of the Living Writers conversation. This has been a very Dave. fun conversation. And again, thanks for having me on. Well, thanks. I'd come back anytime, Randall. And and uh, well, thanks uh, thanks to Jesse Johnston for uh, being the intrepid engineer. Uh, thanks Ann Arbor for listening and to those streaming. Thanks also and Hope Sound. Uh, Chicago, Seattle, Bermuda, elsewhere. Um, You've been listening to The Living Writers. Um, On deck, uh, coming shows, guests will include Ray McDaniel, Andrea Barrett, Gary Snyder, and Charlie Baxter, among others. Um, Thanks. Until next time.
Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Daily Sports Report here on February 20th, 2008. Rushi Vias here in studio with Gordon Chaffin and Kevin Gregus here to bring you the latest sports news in the Michigan area and nationally. Kevin, he's going to start us off with some Michigan news. All right. Um, in terms of uh, you know Michigan sports news, not much really out there. Uh, I did want to go into, into this quickly. Uh, Kevin Quick was arraigned today. Uh, on a few different charges, including uh, credit card fraud uh, and um, identity theft, and that all uh, you know comes from the him stealing.